You're listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live, with your hosts, Eric Provoznik, Jim Culver, Marty Zamora, and Christine Leninger. Hi, I'm Tommy Stinson from Cowboys and the Campfire. You're listening to All Over the Place podcast, where the fun sanity never ends. And I mean it. Hello and welcome back to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. I am your host, Eric Provoznik, and Jim Culver, as always, in the house. Hey, hey. I swear, I swear he's there. There he is. There he is. And also, Christine Leninger. Hello. Marty Zamora, unfortunately, MIA again tonight, but you know he's with us in spirit on this. We got another music-oriented show, folks, and I'm very excited to have this guy on. We're going to be talking about his upcoming book. This is a, a, I mean, uh, he's a music fan, a producer, a DJ, a record executive, tastemaker, all on his resume, and just an all-around amazing music dude and and just one of the nicest people I I think you would ever meet. Peter Jesperson, welcome to All Over the Place. How do you do? Doing well, thank you. And, you know, I mentioned all those things, and you are also now an author of the book Euphoric Recall, A Half Century, as a music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker, congratulations on the memoir. <laughs> yeah, uh, hard to believe they've allowed me to do this, but um, but uh, yep, it's uh, it's it's soon to be unleashed on an unsuspecting public. November fourteenth, to be specific, folks, and you'll see a little scroller down there where you can go and uh, check out where to pick up the book. And I'm guessing all other uh, fabulous retailers, Peter, uh, the the typical Amazons and barnesandnoble.coms, all that? Yep, all of the above. I think uh, um, the only, I'm not really sure what happens overseas. I've been told to direct uh, people to Amazon. And, you know, a book uh, publisher doesn't often want to tell anybody to go to Amazon. But in this case, um, that's the best way to get it if you're overseas for your international audience. So, Peter, why now? Why, Why write the book now? Uh, because somebody offered me a book deal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Next question. Great, great reason. <laughs> no. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's one of those things, I suppose, you know, I've done a lot of different things and, uh, you know, uh, you know, I had uh, people say to me more than once, you know, you ought to write a book someday. And I'd always go, yeah, you and 10 other people would be interested. And, and, uh, and then, um, and also, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I just have worked, you know, all the time, often more than one job at a time. And so I, I just thought, well, to do a book, you know, I'd have to drop all this stuff and I can't do that. And uh, I don't want to do that. So, um, and anyway, when somebody actually offered me the deal, uh, I had been working at a label called New West Records for 17 years, left there in 2016 and was doing freelance stuff and having a grand old time um, not making as much money, but loving it. And, uh, and then all of a sudden in the spring of 2018, I got an email from a gentleman and a publisher who said, we're interested in, um, the possibility of you writing a memoir. What do you think? And I was, you know, I didn't know what to think for sure uh, at first rather. And, um, so finally I, I just, uh, I think after, you know, the, the kind of lurching back and forth from, yes, I can do this to who am I kidding? I can't write a book. And everything in between i finally just said wait somebody's offered me this i'm you know at the point in my life where really looking back and trying to put all this stuff down even if it's nothing more than an elaborate memoir for my boy um 
I, I felt like it was time to do that. And it was just sort of like, um, it just landed in my lap at the right time. A year of, of clearing my desk, you know, because I had a bunch of projects on deck and I said, I can't do this until I can, you know, just concentrate on it. And, and I, I wanted to do it as a writer. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to go to work writing every day like I used to do doing other things. So um, so I waited until I had, a, 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 you know, finished up the projects that were in motion. And then I said, okay, I'm diving in. And I did. And you've got a half century and then some of stories in the book. How did you determine which ones to tell and which ones hopefully to leave for a volume two? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, being a first time author. I've written a lot of stuff, you know, and I love to write. I get a buzz from writing like I do from music in some ways. I, I kind of am just a two track person. I listen to music and I read, uh, you know, those are my, uh, you know, have been my kind of obsessions all my life. But um, I think that uh, um, it was it was uh, to, to determine what I wanted to write was um, I, I mean, I had to just uh, sort of pick the logical subjects. There was a record store that I was at for 10 years that had to be in there. Um, there was uh, uh, during that time we started a record label. And also during that time I started spinning records at a punk rock club downtown Minneapolis and that had to be there. So all these things kind of, you know, so I just made a list of what I thought had to be written about. And then I thought, okay, well, we need a, an introduction that's going to tell how I got to, you know, the first gig at the record store. And uh, so I talked about like really, you know, just how music first came into my life and, you know, just assembled it as best I could. And, uh, and, and then, you know, when I really got into, uh, you know, working with an editor, um, which I needed desperately, I'm a king digressor. And um, also a lot of the stories that I was writing about overlapped, you know, the record store overlapped with the replacements who overlapped with Twin Tone, who overlapped with the Longhorn and all these things. And so uh, I needed an expert to really help me position these things and figure out if I'm writing a chapter about Orfolk, you know, at the same time, I was also at the club spinning records. And how do you make all that work without it being confusing for somebody? I don't know. So it's it was some... Um, a great editor and and just trying to pick the the things that seemed like the the stuff that I needed to write about. Well, it was definitely a fun read, and you know, and I've I've known you for gosh almost twenty years now. Meeting you when uh, I was doing some street street uh, stuff uh, over at New West, right? And just being able to sit down and listen to stories uh, from you know all the one most of which popped up in the book. Uh, but learning so much as well. And, and I think it was uh, Tommy on the, the back of the, the, the book, uh, back of the jacket, one of the blurbs, a reverence and enthusiasm for music just throughout this book. And another thing I learned from the book is all the lifelong friendships you've made at, in every walk of life and all the jobs that you mentioned. And but uh, in the list of people that you were thanking, just what was it like connecting with some of those people that you you hadn't talked to in a while? That was really one of the most rewarding things about the whole process. And and uh, my wife, Jennifer, will uh, testify to that. Um, you know, I was talking to people that I exactly, as you say, hadn't spoken to in 40 years uh, in some cases. And uh, it was it was um, an amazing experience and, and um, very interesting at this point in my life uh, too to, you know, uh, have to deal with memory so much. 
and other people that were, you know, that I ran with back in the day and were in the same age group, same, same age bracket and, and different people remember different things. And some people remember very little and others remember a lot. And, you know, I've got gigantic holes in my memory. So it would be like talking to somebody and saying, I remember this and this and this, but I don't remember how we got from here to here. And they'd kind of fill in a blank from time to time. Sometimes they wouldn't remember either, you know? I mean, is that you probably saw the, the, the Beatles anthology where they got the three living mm -hmm. Beatles together, where they talked about, I forget the exact story, but they all remembered a particular incident, three completely different ways. And, you know, that's, that's really, it's, it's, it's shocking to me how memory works. I remember reading a, a, a book uh, when I was a, maybe late teens, um, uh, autobiography by a, a guy named Alfred Jari, who invented the character Per Ubu um, in, in French literature. And he, uh, and he wrote the whole first chapter of, um, uh, actually, no, it wasn't Alfred Jari. It was Louis Bunuel, a filmmaker. But anyway, I'm not telling the story very well. But uh, Louis Bunuel's uh, autobiography, the first chapter is called Memory, and he talks about the age that he was at and losing his memory. And he said a horrifying thing that stuck with me all my life. He said, losing your memory is, is it makes it as if you never lived at all. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, what a what a horrible thing that would be. And uh, I'm not to that point yet, but memory really does start to play a serious role in our lives at this age. Well, I, I, one of my favorite quotes from Tennessee Williams, uh, among many great quotes from that guy, is our memories are best preserved in the songs that we listen to as we get older. Or, or, as, we, as we live, our memories are best preserved that way. And you just, this book, and it was also uh, Bob Mayer just saying that it was written with a fan's passion and a tastemaker's discernment. All the things that you've done uh, in your half century the music fan, producer, DJ, record exec, and tastemaker. What's been your favorite of those? And because they're all they all are under that umbrella of music. You know, I think I. I mean, I was lucky to work with stuff uh, pretty much at all times that I really, really loved. But I suppose the thing that maybe I felt I was best at, and maybe the thing that I liked the most, was the record store. I mean, that was ten years, and I mean, you know, you. All, often think god that was a great time and i didn't really realize at the time how great it was i mean at that whole period of the record store it was like i just knew this was you know a, a period of my life that i was never going to forget and that i was going to you know um you know i was going to be happy that i had experienced for the rest of my life and it certainly informed you know so many of the things that i ended up doing so it was very important it was like my college really it was like a 10-year yeah. you know 10-year college course it's every megalomaniac's dream to, to work at a record store, and you, you got to live that. And, it's, that was... and if I'm remembering the chronology right, you, you went from working at the Guthrie, which as a, as a former theater guy, you worked at the Guthrie, damn. Uh, yeah. And then uh, then there was the brief foray with the college and, and the DJing, and then that, that a year or so of that, right? And then, and the, then the record store popped up, right? Well, yeah, I didn't. I mean, the, the radio stuff was... Um... I went to radio school while I was working at Orfolk and then I started working in radio uh, and I would do a, an overnight shift and work at oh, Orfolk in yeah. the afternoon to closing. And, you know, I just did that in this endless cycle. I didn't have any kind of social life really during that time. I just worked all the time, but there was, it was great stuff. I mean, it was such a stimulating, um, you know, uh, 
I, I had two nearly full-time jobs and I loved both of them. So I wasn't going to drop one because I was too busy and I didn't, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, at that age, you know, you're, you're not, you know, you don't mind working all the time. I mean, I guess I, I still kind of work all the time. So, um, but anyway, <laughs> I love to work. And, and now we're seeing, we, we mentioned in the pre-show that your son, Audrey, is just all bipping all over the place, a, a, a drive and all, and just, again, being surrounded by music. And uh, I don't want to give too much of the structure of the book away, but there's something that Autry mentioned to you when he was young, well, 11, maybe 12 yeah. years old when you guys were out 11. on the show. Yeah. And uh, music is a feeling we don't get from anything else. Yeah. And that is definitely a, a thread throughout the entire book and just... It comes across, and you're you you are the guru. <laughs> and so, I mean, and, and how how did you pass that down to Autry? Where, where I get when I said the book from the mouths of babes, and and he just got it from such an early age. And how did you instill that in him? I you know we didn't try. I mean, we didn't discourage him or encourage him. Really, it was just he was surrounded by music. Uh, you know, all of his life. Um, you know, we 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 joke about it sometimes that. Maybe he came out so uh, unusual because uh, I was um, uh, the day when he before we'd even taken him home from the hospital after we got things basically settled and I could run out and get some work done. Uh, we were mastering a, an album by Mark Eitzel uh, for New West in Hollywood. And so I would run into Hollywood and attend the mastering session and then bring some of the master tracks back and listen to him on a boombox in the hospital room. And uh, so we thought, well, that's that's going to that's going to really put a dent in a kid's uh, uh, development if you're playing a Mark Eitzel records at, uh, you know, when he's a couple days old. But um, so, you know, he was just around it all the time. I, we In fact, we were just talking a minute ago on the phone about how um, he had gone his uh, he's taking an art history class and they'd gone to the Getty today. And um, and uh, so we were talking. I said, well, you, do you remember that was where your um, the first concert you ever went to was at the Getty in their auditorium there and and he had remembered because of course we told the story ad nauseum over the years but uh but we took him I had to go for a work thing for New West to take him to see this group called the Resentments which was an Austin Texas super group with John John D Graham Stephen Bruton Scrappy Newcomb uh, a couple revolving door bass players and drummers <coughs> and um anyway he must have been I don't know four months old five months old or something <laughs> So that was his first concert. And uh, and, and I, one of the funny things about that is Stephen Bruton, who was a key uh, person in my life and, and certainly for New West Records. He was the uh, he was the uh, second, third artist signed to New West uh, before I even got there. Um, but anyway, Stephen uh, had known that I had just uh, my wife and I had had a kid. And he said, when you get to the when you get to the Getty before we go on stage, I know you probably can't stay for the whole show. But he said, give me a buzz backstage and I'll come out and find you. And so he uh, he came out just to hold my boy for a minute. And I remember him just looking at him. This, you know, the great Stephen Bruton, the prince of Austin, Texas, looks at looks at him and he goes, he said, um, he said, uh, um, there's he said, uh, there's the boy king, he said. And so he actually became the boy king for uh, several years there. Well, that's what we called him. Still call him that from time to time. So. Anyway, he got he was uh, he got the bug when he was quite young, um, and and uh, we we joke also about the fact that he learned how to uh, when he was learning how to talk, he was listening to Hermit's Hermit so much that he started pronouncing words with an English accent. 
Honest. <laughs> Speaking of New West, and again, just in the stories that you and I have had through the years, at, at, you know, just uh, I was blessed to get all these stories at, at lunches that, that we, we would uh, have. But I, I, I got a kick out of the fact that, uh, you know, when you live in L.A., you see all these people at Bruton and all these people at, at New West and beyond. And uh, you're actually starstruck by Chris Christopherson. I love that story in the book. Well, I mean, I don't, you know, I wasn't, and I wasn't even somebody like, uh, you know, had my wife been there and he'd walked in the room, she would have fainted, you know, from, because she, you know, I never saw the film A Star is Born, for instance. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I was such a fan of his and, and we sold so many of his records uh, at Orfolk in the early days um, when he was making his first records for Monument. Um, and, and um, you know, I mean, it really was kind of a, a astounding how often we sold those records. I knew the catalog numbers by heart because we sold them so often. And, uh, you know, they were six digit Columbia records. Um, it was millennia, uh, Monument was part of uh, Columbia at the time. And uh, so anyway, they had they had long numbers and I had them memorized. But anyway, um, um, it was uh, I, he, I, I remember sitting in a conference room and Cameron Strang, the owner of New West, is on my left. And Don was who was going to produce the uh, Christofferson record for us was on my right. And we were waiting for Chris. And all of a sudden we're in conversation. And suddenly I hear this voice saying, hello, fellas, or something like that. And I just heard the voice and I just, you know, it was like gave me chills. And uh, and all of a sudden he's, he walks around into my view and he's wearing, you know, beat up jeans and a denim T-shirt. And he's got his hair kind of a, a skew and uh, handsome as the day is long, beat up cowboy boots. And and we're introduced. And um, uh, Don, of course, had met him before. And I think Cam and I were both meeting him for the first time then. And and uh, and after I was introduced to him, I said, uh, Chris, I got to thank you for helping to pay the rent at our record store. We sold so many of your records there back in 1970, 71. And or in the early 70s. And uh, he just laughed and he said, uh, happy to be happy to be of help there, Peter. And it was uh, it was a great moment. I'll never forget. Again, so many stories. And I mentioned earlier about, you know, there maybe being a volume two. But anyone who follows you on social media knows that you are still out there. I, I, I'm amazed uh, all these bands that you you you're constantly seeing sometimes with Autry, sometimes I mean, just going out there, just what keeps you going? To, in, in discovering new music and how do you keep discovering new music i mean I, you know it's just what i do and what i've always done i'm just a, i i can't live without it i i uh um you know autry and i were at a show last night we went to see dope lemon this guy from australia that i have been a, a nut for since 2007 um and uh uh autry also like like his the, the the stuff that he did originally when i fell in love with his music was kind of a folk rock thing and now he's doing I don't even know what you'd call it. It's sort of groove stoner music. Um, but anyway, called yeah, Dope Lemon. And it was really a fantastic show at a new room downtown here called The Bellwether. Um, so it's fun. You know, I wanted to see The Bellwether. Wilco had just played a couple nights uh, stand there over the weekend and people were raving about what a great new room it was. And I thought, here's my opportunity. I don't know. I just, I love live music. There's just, it's, um, I mean, I like, you know, record. I mean, I, I, when I'm at home, I listen to recorded music. I go out and see live music. I just, music is, you know, all day long is fine with me. So Peter, what is your favorite venue? Where's the best, best place to see a show? Well, the best place in Los Angeles, without a doubt, in my mind is the Troubadour. And, and um, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's there. It's, uh, it's about 450 capacity, uh, great sound system, 
great light system. You can, uh, when it's sold out, you can always find a good place to stand where the, the sound is good and the sight lines are good. I don't think they ever oversell it. And it's a, one of those places I, you know, I, I don't remember the first thing I saw there. I uh, would have been before I lived out here. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it, it, you walk in the place and it's, 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 it's one of those, if these walls could talk sort of things, you're just humbled by what has happened in that room since the late fifties, you know? It's, it's, yeah, it's uh, iconic for sure. I remember reading about it in uh, Tim Buckley's um, Dream Brother book. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Great book. I mean, you know, Linda Ronstadt, Elton John, you know, uh, Van Dyke Parks played there with his in a duo with his brother in the late 50s. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's just insane. Um, what did we see there? What's the last thing we saw there? Oh, Daniel Romano's outfit, this band from uh, outside of Toronto that are another, uh, I, I think, candidate for best rock band on the planet right now. And I'm glad you brought him up that, that, as a tastemaker. That was one that you planted the seeds with me when he was first coming on with New West. And I, I'm glad he was mentioned quite a bit in the book. And and hearing that, I'm glad to, glad to hear he's, he's still out there, out there cooking. Oh, my God. His, uh, the, the current band he's got is uh, they're shockingly good. His, his wife is in, in the band and uh, they have another woman singer. So he's got two uh, female singers on either side of him and a bass player and a drummer. It really, I, I honest to God, when I, I thought, first saw this lineup, I said, it's like, a, it's like a, a perfect marriage of Dylan's Rolling Thunder review and The Who. I mean, it's just explosive music. And uh, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're, they'll wear you out, believe me. If you see them, they make your heart pound and your legs stomp. And you know, by the end of the night, you feel like a wet rag. If only the van, we have a venue here that I think would, pretty comparable size wise to the Troubadour, either Crescent Ballroom or maybe the Van Buren. We got to keep our eyes on that one because uh, the, their, their calendar this year hasn't been that good. So what was the first one you mentioned, Eric? Uh, Crescent Ballroom. Actually, Crescent Ballroom is more, I, I liken that to more, it's more of a, a Roxy size in terms of the intimacy. And yeah. that's the biggest thing I miss about LA or all the, what's left on the Sunset Strip. Love the Roxy, love the Troubadour. I miss House of Blues. Down, down there on Sunset Strip. That was a, a favorite venue. Largo, Spaceland. I love Spaceland, but uh, alas, rest in peace. Last yeah. I heard. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up in the book uh, a show, a rare show that Peter and I were actually there at the same time, Drive by Truckers at the start of 03. One of the greatest shows I think I will ever see. One of the few shows, and I'm not ashamed to admit this, where I, I was actually, the room was a little dusty. When they played something's got to give yeah that was an unbelievable show and you know the story behind that one i i was so buzzed by it and i knew you know the funny thing about it is i knew this tall singer patterson hood from he was the sound guy at the high hat club in, in athens georgia mm -hmm. where i did a lot of work down there and um so i knew him you know as a sound man before i knew even he was in a band and um so anyway uh i went to see the show and they just blew the roof off the joint as, as you were saying and the next day I marched into Cameron's office and I started raving about the show I'd seen the night before in this great band, the Drive-By Truckers. And he said, well, interestingly enough, they had a deal with Lost Highway that's coming apart and we have an opportunity to sign them. And I was just on the phone with their manager and I was like, what? Synchronicity. Kismet. Yeah, Kismet is right. Got to do a whole bunch of records with those guys. Some of their best, I think. Dirty South. I, I did. Decoration Day, Dirty South, and Blessing and a Curse. I, I put that up against any 
triple album from a a anybody three in a row sure. absolutely and it, when you know jason isbell in the band they had three writers and three singers that were you know just all class a and uh, th this lovely lady too too i guess she's to my right on this we were actually able to uh we Music music brought us together, and I'll, I'll let her gush uh, in a little yep. bit on that one if she, if she wants. We already to. thanked Tommy for getting oh, us together. <laughs> that's right, yes. Uh, but uh, we were able to go. Uh, uh, the first time we went to to Red Rocks was for a Jason Isbell show earlier this year. Yeah. So we, if you're going to do your first show at Red Rocks, it's got to be monumental. So. Yeah. And that, that was yeah, just recently, so right? That, that was. Uh, it was in May. May. It was yeah. the beginning of May. We got to see them our first uh, foray into the Red Rocks. But um, yeah. since we, since Eric so wonderfully brought it up, we'll Just share on the spot. He and I met at a Tears for Fears concert last year, and we bonded over our mutual love of the replacements and Peter, um, Paul Westberg. All so right. he said that he said that when I turned to him and I said, "I love Paul Westberg and the replacements," he went, "Bing." <laughs> right. And that was that. <laughs> yep. And and here we are now. So it's all good. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. So um speaking of that, of course, you're well known for having, you know, been a big part in the replacement success, discovering and managing them for the years. And of course, you know, you talk about your son who, you know, at such a young age expressed his love for music and Gosh, of all things, Tommy was what twelve when he started with the band, and yep. um, he was a, just a little guy, you know, back then. And I have a twelve-year-old; I couldn't even imagine sending off on tour. So, yeah. like, and you were his guardian, like, so how over the years that you've known him and working with the band and all of that, like, um, share with us a little bit about you know that experience and the time and well, all that. Yeah, there's so much to that story, really. But I mean, you know, when, you know, the funny thing was he was the last replacement that I met. Um, I went to see the band play. Uh, Westerberg had dropped a tape off at the store. And this is interesting, too. While I was writing the book and talking to Chris Mars, I found out that Chris was with Paul when he dropped off the tape. And that was a piece of, you know, the story that I never knew before. So Chris was just kind of, you know, quietly off to like the side. Like it out in the store. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and um, so anyway, so I met Paul and Chris was there, but I didn't meet him. And then uh, uh, I fell in love with the tape and, and uh, he invited me to a show they were doing uh, in a church down a few blocks from the record store. Um, and uh, it was a sober club in the basement of a church. And so I went to see them. And as I was walking up the stairs to go into the church, there was a kid sitting on the steps right before I got to the door who all of a sudden looked up at me and he looked kind of dejected and and he looked up at me and he said you must be pete and i said i am and yeah that's me and he said i'm chris i'm the drummer we just got kicked out we ain't gonna play and i was like oh okay and then a second later the double doors opened and there's westerberg had brought me the tape and he introduces me to the other guy with him and that was the guitar player bob stinson and um they said well we got caught with pills and booze and they're kicking us out and we're not going to play. And the owner or the guy who ran the club was in a complete rage, screaming, how dare you? And, you know, you got to you got to give it to him. I mean, that was <laughs> walking into a sober club and pulling something like that is um, I don't know. Uh, 
probably wasn't the smartest thing in the world, but, uh, and I hate to say it, but I kind of, it kind of made me chuckle. Um, and, uh, and I said, well, where's the fourth guy? And they said, oh, well, he was uh, climbing a tree earlier today and fell out and tore a ligament in his, in his arm. So he, uh, you know, he's getting stitched up at the doctor or whatever. And I didn't really think at the time that, you know, it was going to be a 13 year old kid I was going to meet in a couple of days, but that's what it ended up being. So, um, anyway, uh, you know, I mean, he was a remarkable young man and he fit in. I mean, there certainly were kid elements to him. Like we often, you know, rem you know, we're talking about those old days. Uh, you know, I remember we had to always set up a microphone for him on stage, even though he didn't really sing, but he needed a microphone because when he wasn't flying across the stage in midair, he'd stop long enough to grab the mic and yell, fuck. And then he'd like jump into the air again. I mean, that was what you do when you're 13, right? So hearing your name coming out of a big PA saying fuck, that's like, like pretty cool. So, um, so those are the, yeah. Uh, but, you know, he had those, uh, you know, that matinee idol, uh, you know, uh, face and and even then. And he was just, uh, and, and, and the other thing about it was, you know, people would go, oh, wow. I, I remember, you know, that was a, a thing that I got a lot of flack for. Oh, wow, Peter band with a 13 year old bass player this is really going to go far and i'd be like you know he's 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 better than the bass player in your band sorry man you know i mean you know he's he was a great player from the beginning i mean he was in fact he's probably in some ways the best musician you know in the replacements um i mean i think they were all great players but uh tommy might have been the most purely musical of the four uh, or five if you count slim you know so so uh, well, that's one of the things I've loved about the, the replacements, remasters, the reissues, everything uh, is Tommy's uh, bass playing has really popped out more. And yeah. I never realized what an amazing bass player he was. Yeah. And it was fun because one of the shows I, I saw him at the Largo, I think it was. Uh, and he was playing guitar that night. And he's like, uh, yeah, I'm just please bear in mind. I'm usually a bass player. Yeah. And just that's the way he played his guitar. So it's a. Uh, and, and with, with the reissues, and, and you, of course, have been in the, involved in the liner notes, going back with all the Rhino reissues as well. But what, what's been your take on uh, the better or the better or the different sound as it was with Dead, Dead Man's Pop or on now with the Let Bleed edition of, of, of Tim? I think they've all been just so um, spectacularly well curated. I mean, you know, you got Jason Jones at Rhino, who's the head of A&R there. Um, great guy, smart guy, real record guy, uh, Bob Mayer, who, you know, obviously has done, you know, he knows more about the replacements probably than anybody else with the amount of research and, and, you know, time he spent, you know, putting that story together for Trouble Boys. I mean, it was, I think, a remarkable feat. Um, and, um, and then I've been involved in some cases I'm consulting, in some cases I'm co-producing, but, uh, I think that the, um, you know, the, the work has been really great. And I think it's shown a light on some aspects of the replacements that um, other people maybe didn't see close up. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I, I mean, uh, the the Live at Maxwell's, I guess, was the first real big one. And I think that's a wonderful project. I mean, I remember, you know, when it was recorded there at Maxwell's in Hoboken, you know, it was really hard to you know, the replacements when they knew they were being recorded played differently than when they didn't know they were being recorded or when they weren't being recorded. And um, so, you know, we had a big mobile truck. Warner Brothers had brought a truck out there and 
run cables in and out of the this great music room that we'd played you know the band had played a hundred times and um one of the best another one of the best uh christine to your uh question earlier about best rock clubs um you know troubadour in la maxwell's in in you know the whole you know greater new york area uh unbelievable club and one of the best i've ever been in um so anyway the thing that's interesting to me about that is um they even though they were touring on the tim album at that time i think the best performances are songs from uh sorry ma and stink um you know just for whatever reason that night they were really playing those well and um uh and i think that also bob was already a little bit on the brink of you know being out of the band and was not always rising to the occasion and so i don't think that's as great a show um i, I mean i think that it did it was nice to have a really good recording of the replacements live but i i think that it's not quite as good as they really were and i think like for instance the live version the live show we put in the sorry ma box set in 2021 is a much better show and much more uh emblematic or much more representative of what they really sounded like at that time um you know in the early days um so you know anyway i think that they've all really well done i you know don't tell a soul as i, I always say is, is is to me the eighth best replacements record um I, I think that there's some songs on there that don't uh that didn't set, stand the test of time i didn't think they were good to to begin with and they certainly haven't stood the test of time but i do think that the remix made it um uh you know the the chris lord algae mixing that record back in 1988 uh you know i i i mean i know they were trying to do the best for that record i think lenny warnaker actually one of the great you know a and r guys of all time in the record business i think might have had something to do with you know uh, quite a bit to do with that album and and i'm not sure who made the decision or who decided to bring Chris Lord Algae in, but I thought that that just made that record uh, sound ridiculous. And um, and I love the fact that they got to go back to kind of what Matt Wallace, you know, would have done had he been allowed to mix it, because Matt Wallace is a very, very good producer who really got the replacements and had a rapport with Westerberg like very few other uh, producers ever did. Um, so I think that turned out well, but you know, you can't, um, what is it, what's the line about you can't, uh, you can't shine a pig or whatever. I mean, it's like hard to, um, you know, make a, a bunch of song, you know, a group of songs that aren't strong all together. You know, lipstick uh, on a pig. Lipstick on a pig. Lipstick yeah. on a pig. There you go. Um, you know, I think that probably the, the theater guy to come up with the lipstick part on that one. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I mean, I think they're all good in their own way. I, I think um, you know the the police to meet me one was fascinating to listen to. I think. Um, um, you know, the, the, the new mix of, of Tim is, uh, I call it a correction. It really sounds like what it should have sounded like to begin with. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out why that record went haywire when, you know, we, we had so many good elements from Alex Chilton starting the record to, you know, Tommy Ramone, uh, recording it and, and, uh, you know, nobody's really sure why it turned out like it did, but it just turned the sound, the production was just odd and, and. I think I just read something uh, the other day in one of the reviews of the box set where, where they were quoting Westerberg back in the day. He said, he said, yeah, when the record was done, he said it was like it didn't sound the way I wanted to sound. But it was like, God, we got to be done with this record. I can't think about it anymore. And so 
you know, for better or worse, that's what it's going to be. And everybody just walked away from it. And all these years later, 38 years later, you know, you get to remix it. And I'm glad they also were able to uh, put the full incarcerated show on that Dead Man's Pop because yep. I, that EP was like, it's my favorite version of, of uh, oh, geez, and of course now I blank, uh, Unsatisfied. Is, that's my favorite live version of that song. It, it just right. and I have the entire concert. And I and Christine's pretty sure that her brother is at that show too. So I think that's kind of cool. Ah, oh, how fun. Are you from Wisconsin? Yeah. Is and, that where you're from, Christine? I'm from the Chicago area. Oh, Chicago. Got it. My brother got lived it. in Milwaukee for a while. <laughs> got and, it. And the, do the dogs finally chime in with their approval for the show this evening. That's good. <laughs> Always. Yes. Good, good, good. Um, it's yeah, not I a show without Mabel or or uh, or Luby. And but I all those shows, and I'm I'm not going to try and do it with the same energy that Mr. Westerberg did. But everything that they've been released on these boxes, those live shows are murder. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm, As they I'm sing thinking. on uh, Maxwell's record. Yeah. And uh, you know, speak, speaking of of Mr. Westerberg, I, I love the quote that you pulled from him when you're talking about you know just. Music is art, not product. And you are just so perfectly suited for, for that. And to the point where you, you probably sh should have belonged to Reprise, where Mr. Yeah. Warnker and, and those guys, it was just such an artist-friendly place. Yeah. And, and Mo Austin, Lenny and Mo. And, uh, but Westerberg's aim for the audience's pockets and you'll miss their hearts by a mile. Thank you for sharing that in the book. That is just above and beyond. My favorite lyricist of all time, and just that that's fast become my favorite sentiment. Yeah. In an opinion piece for the New York Times, no less. I mean, he wrote two, and they're both brilliant. I hope he writes some more one day. I I think we all do. In time. Right. And I got to ask you this. You, meant, you mentioned Don't Tell a Soul is the eighth best replacements album. Are you still considering Suicane Gratification the eighth or ninth best Westerberg album. Uh, you or know, it's one I don't listen to at all. I just, uh, I'm sorry. Or, or has time again? treated it better? The more, the, the further we get from it, are, are you able no, to? No, I. It no, I think I don't. I don't think that's a good record at all. <laughs> well, the few things where Peter and I will just have to agree to disagree. That's all right. That's, yeah. it's, it's, it's music. Uh, it's taste. It's subjective. So. Yep, I was just and, actually talking with a, another guy that I, another musician I'm doing a little bit of work with who, who loves the record and, you know, to each their own, you know, just one to me doesn't compute. There's some greatness on it. There's some, there's some eh on it, but yeah, it, it just, it hit the right time for me. And that, that's music again. It, 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 it's, yep. it's awesome. And back to the book, you got uh, one of the things I like about this, you're going on tour with Tommy to accompany this one for a little bit on the book tour and a little music tour and up and and I'm hoping that Jim who lives in Seattle is going to be able to go see, uh, see uh, either of the, the book signing or, or, or a show that Cowboys uh, and the Campfire is doing. I'll do and my best. Thank I, you. I, I Jim, got have, you been, have you ever been to the sleight of hand cellars? Jim? I've never been there. It's a winery yeah. and it's apparently very close to easy street records. So we're going to do the end okay. store at six o'clock and then, uh, the doors are at eight at the winery and then uh, Tommy and the Cowboys go on at eight 30. Nice. I'll be sure to check it out. Yeah. 
And Peter, I do need to ask, are you guys going to rent a Ford Econoline for old time's sake on, on the tour <laughs> down the left coast? No, we're not actually. Uh, I mean, actually, I thought possibly I would ride down from Seattle to Portland with them. But Tommy said they've, their vehicle is packed tight with, you know, all the equipment and the three of them. They got a stand up base, takes up a bunch of room. So I got booted out of the van and uh, I'm taking the train down. But um, and then I leave them after Portland. They do another week's worth of dates. I go to Minneapolis and then I meet Tommy in uh, I guess I'm going to meet him in New York in December for three more of these uh, book things. Well, I still got the fingers crossed you can make it out here uh, out here to the desert for for uh, either a book signing or something concurrent with Tommy. I, I, yeah, I, I, I would love to. I'd love to do more of them. I mean, I guess we'll see how these go. You know, we haven't done one yet, so maybe they'll suck and we won't want to do more. But uh, we're going to do. Yeah. Uh, Less than uh, just about two weeks. What is it? Today's Tuesday. Two weeks from Friday's the first one in Seattle. Yeah. Nice. And uh, just, uh, there's another chapter in the book that I'm, I'm sure I'm not sure how difficult it was to write, but in, but it, it gave two things to me that, that really popped out, especially the title of the book coming from the chapter that you did when you when you had to find your sobriety. Right. And uh, one of the things that one of the revelations with your sobriety is that you still had a lot of records to make. And again, that just goes back folks to the, the over that the through line in this book of music, the feeling we don't get from anything else. And so how was it writing that chapter? Oh, you know, uh, uh, you know, there were some unpleasant things to write about, but I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, you know, it's, you know, life isn't always a walk in the park. Right. You know, and, and uh, I think that there were, you know, there, there's a lot of, stuff that you know i didn't write about on purpose um for one reason or another but it just seemed like that had to be in there it was such a big part of you know for one thing i mean and there's a, I, I felt part of me was a little reluctant to write it just because it was such a fucking cliche um you know record business you know somebody's drinking too much and doing too much of this and that and it's like oh god not another one you know but um you know that's what happened and uh it's a as they say, a slippery slope. And, and, you know, I was a drug man. I love drugs. And then um, somehow I started, you know, dabbling in, you know, uh, uh, actually the first thing I really started drinking was Johnny Walker Red Scotch. You know, it's a heck of a place to start. That just had to do with a, a girl I was dating and she had expensive taste. And that's where I really got drawn into the whiskey. And then a buddy of my name is shortly after uh, or a couple of years, probably after I got into the whiskey drinking, a friend of mine, um, uh, I, I remember coming into the CC Club Kitty Corner from the record store after a, hot, a bike ride on a hot day. And I was going to have a Johnny Walker Red on the Rocks. And the, my buddy Tim Carr said, um, uh, Peter, he said, you got to have the you, you got to have a beer and ice cold, cold beer is what you drink on a hot day like this. And he said to the bartender, he said, give Peter the cold, uh, coldest beer, you you know, the, the beer that's the coldest and the coldest uh, refrigeration unit you got. And, and I'm buying it. And uh, he added me the beer and I believe it was a grain belt um, and I drank it and I said, hey, this is pretty good. So, you know, I added, you know, beer to my whiskey drinking and, you know, then I, you know, I had lots of options. And then, uh, you know, I figured, you know, if, if, if you know, some substance was going to get me, it was going to be one of the drugs. And, and all of a sudden one day I turned around and the alcohol had its claws in me and and uh, that was like, holy cow, how did I get here? <coughs> so. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a weird thing. And uh, I just uh, felt 
that had to be put down. And I certainly learned my lesson. Um, I'm 32 and a half years since my last cocktail now. And, you know, I don't even think about it. But I mean, I, I, I when I stopped, I just stopped. I never had any kind of issues or temptation or urges or any of that stuff. I didn't. I did a little bit of the uh, AA meetings um, right when I got out because uh, I went through treatment and the people in my that got me well said I ought to go to some AA meetings. And so I went to the bare minimum uh, and I was just anxious to get back on, you know, with my work and my life. And so I just haven't needed it. And I understand lots of people do need to go to meetings on a regular basis. And, and I have no problem with that. Obviously, I don't make fun of it or anything. It's just I just didn't particularly need it myself. And and um, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, and, it, and it really was. It was a funny thing to, you know, the, uh, another thing that I had such a, a moment of clarity when I came to in the hospital. And it really was, you know, the first thing was, you know, figuratively wiping my brow going, I'm I guess I'm alive. I made it. And then number two was I can't die yet. I got a lot of records to make. That was exactly what happened. That was my thought process. And. And then I just couldn't wait to get out of that hospital bed and, you know, get back into the recording studio. Well, I'm glad music ultimately is your drug of choice. And again, all those records to make and still still out there and, and gifting us with, with, again, the tastemaker. And I, I purposely, you know, in reading the book, I, I, I knew that the Beatles and Stones were big with you. I knew Bowie and was reminded that uh, Dylan is kind of your Mount Rushmore, your, your big four out of everything. Who are... In, Who's your 21st century or what's going on now that, that uh, as, as a tastemaker, who are, are, are four that you would uh, want to recommend to our listeners? Well, Daniel Romano's outfit, I, as I said before, um, uh, an astonishing artist who can do so many different things. It's just breathtaking. Um, when I first met him, he came, uh, he was signed to New West by uh, one of our A&R guys. And uh, I was very skeptical at first. He was doing straight country music at the time. And it was a little sticky to me. He did an album called Come Cry With Me. And um, it had a little bit of the kind of cornball country stuff going on in some ways. But the songs were so clever um, that I I, 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 I I didn't write it off. But I just, I just kind of, I was concerned. And on the cover, he had a cowboy hat on and kind of a nudie suit type of thing. And I thought, wait a minute, this, do you really need that if you're a real country guy? Do you need to you know, play this, you know, the, the, the wardrobe to the hilt? Um, so I was a little skeptical, but then um, he started making a, a follow-up record, which was also country, but much more serious. It was called uh, If I've Only One Time Askin is the title. And it's a, 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 if you ever get a chance to listen to the song, the story of the song is uh, stunning. And I think that uh, I don't want to give away the, 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 the story because it's, it's when you realize what he's writing about, it's, it's really something that I think would stop you in your tracks. Um, beautifully written. Anyway, those those uh, demos, I heard the tracks as he was, you know, working on that record and I started to get sucked in. And then I saw him do a performance at South by Southwest where it was one of those revelatory moments where like the, I'm with, you know, a hundred people around me and suddenly the crowd disappears and I'm the only one there and it's just me and the band. And, you know, I was just like, I lost my mind and uh, and I've just been a nutty fan of his ever since. They've actually recorded right here in the back room. They've actually, they, they stay here when they come through town. I've had them all set up here uh, in the back room and recording. It's a blast. Live music, except no substitutes. That's, well, yeah. 
Uh, so anyway, Daniel Romano's outfit. See, there I go digressing again. I'm going to try to not do this so much. So, but they're beautiful digressions. Well, uh, Daniel Romano's outfit. I think my favorite band right at the moment is a, an LA band called Gold Star. Um, I they were uh, uh, it's, it's a the short version of the story is I started hearing their music as early as 2009 when the kid was in his teens. And he's in his late 20s now, early 30s, possibly. And um, I lost track of him for a while when I wasn't doing A&R at New West for a couple of years. And then after leaving New West. And the funny thing about it was it was his mother was sending me his music. She was a publicist here in L.A. Um, and and uh, she's from Vienna. He was born in Vienna, but raised in L.A. And um, and she had been sending me the music. And uh, he started out as uh, God. When I first met him, it was the Sister Ruby Band. Then it was uh, CG, Roxanne, and the Nightmares, and then it became Gold Star. And then I lost track of him. And then uh, about four, five, six months ago, Autry came over, came home for dinner one Sunday and came in raving about this new band he discovered called Gold Star. And I just kind of laughed and pulled out this you know music that I'd gotten in 2009 and said, here's the guy, same guy. And I said, you mean... I mean, he's still playing. I thought he disappeared, maybe gave up music or whatever. But anyway, he's just been under the radar, under my radar anyway. And he started playing shows around L.A. again. And it's one of the best bands I've seen in a long, long time. I, I would I would lay down in the highway for him. If I was at a record label, I would beg the powers that be to sign them. I think he's he's got vast, vast potential. Um, four albums uh, uh, under the name Gold Star and... Um, and a new one done and ready to go. And uh, and he's already written some new songs. I saw him a couple of weeks ago and, and he closed the show with a total punked out version of uh, uh, This is the Sea by the Waterboys. And I just thought this is just sheer genius. I mean, it was just, it just blew my mind. See, we, we could have used that on our last show where we were talking about our favorite covers that are deconstructed versions of the originals. Yeah, well, there you go. Good to know. I'm already written down Gold Star and Daniel Romano. So, yep, I'm. Gold Star, you got to find them on Bad Camp. And, you know, Bad Camp's getting in uh, some kind of difficulty with their new owners right now. So, you better buy anything you want on Bad Camp fast. Bad Camp, got it. Somebody's already got my account there, I think, from uh, one of Slim's albums. What's that about Slim's album? Uh, I think, what, didn't he uh, release his live album? Uh, a oh, there's of, like, an album called Hello, Dan- uh, Thank You Dancers. That, Thank uh, you, Dan- yeah, well, that was through Bandcamp, I think, wasn't it? I think you can find it on Bandcamp, yeah. Well, I, I got the CD. Well, of course, I don't have a CD player that works anymore, but I got the CD oh. and then the digital version. So, yeah. Cool. So. Yep. Yeah, his wife, Chrissy, put that together. I think she and, and his daughter, B. I think they did a great job with that. Yeah, great live album. Yeah. Yep. And uh, speaking gonna... of the the Slim album, uh, for, well, first like the uh, the songs for Slim, and then of course we uh, you uh, followed that up with the the double album, right. of, of his two solo albums uh, for uh, yep. uh, for the uh, well, that was that was for Record Store Day, right? The the double 2015, yeah. And uh, with all the the projects you've done, and, I, and of course you mentioned in the book and uh, all the different projects, that one certainly what was. Um, not just a labor of love, but uh, something uh, a coming together of so many artists to help somebody else out. And wh- where would you rank that in the projects that you've done the songs for Slim? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, 
we were, you know, just so everybody was just so devastated when he had the stroke in February of 2012. And you're just really, it just was like, you know, uh, you know, I can't even begin to imagine what the family felt, but from, you know, I was just outside of the family and uh, it was just devastating. And you were just kind of, it was like, you know, uh, how can, how can this have happened to a, a person as, you know, as wonderful a person as Bob Dunlap, you know, and, um, and then a, a mutual friend of ours just sent me an email a couple of weeks after it happened and said, um, have you started thinking about the uh, Slim Dunlap tribute album to raise money for his medical expenses? And I went, no, I haven't, but I'm starting to right now. And uh, so um, I kind of kicked some ideas around in my head. I talked to Jennifer about it. I called Chrissy, his wife, and said, I'd like to do something, maybe get some people to record his songs and, and maybe, you know, get some publishing money flowing and help you pay some medical bills. You know, do I have your blessing on this? And she said, yes. And so we just dove in and um, tried to figure it out, started talking to people that I knew admired Slim and people that Slim admired uh, that maybe didn't know about his own music, like nrbq who didn't end up doing a song for the record but nonetheless we tried and um and uh but you know there were people that really really loved those slim records like the old new me which i can see there right behind you uh was a big favorite of of uh, joe henry's and in fact i remember him writing me after uh he'd gotten the record when it first came out and saying i love the record but he said the one thing that kind of pisses me off is that you know it's the best album title he said i wish i'd thought of that the old new me <laughs> And, uh, and I thought that was a pretty cool thing for Joe to say. Um, and so naturally um, I asked if he'd want to record a track and Joe is such a, 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 a gadabout producer in some ways doing all those different projects with the likes of Sal, you know, Solomon Burke and Alan Toussaint and, and all these people um, uh, that I thought, you know, hey, anybody that you work with that maybe we could get to do a Slim song. So. You know, he produced several tracks, uh, three or four. He did Lucinda Williams, Steve Earle, uh, his own, uh, and Jacob Dylan. Yeah, I think there were four. And we did them all at a studio right here in North Hollywood. Um, that was an amazing uh, series of recording sessions with uh, uh, the kind of um, Joe Henry's uh, wrecking crew, uh, Jay Bellarose on drums, and um, God, I'm going to forget the bass player's name. Wonderful uh uh, woman bass player. Um, but anyway, uh, just, uh, and, oh, and, um, uh, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers the man from uncle, uh, TV show, but Ilya Kiriakin, his, uh, his, uh, he was the father of this, uh, kid, uh, who ended up coming in and playing guitar on the songs for slim sessions. Um, Val, God, why am I forgetting his name now? Uh, Val McCallum, of course, Ian McCallum's son. So, so that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, yeah, we had a great time doing that. And uh, then we got Ed Ackerson in Minneapolis to record, you know, he did the replacements tracks. Um, that was a pretty interesting thing because uh, I was actually in Australia when the band was in the studio and I was on needles and pins waiting to hear the results mm -hmm. of the sessions. And I felt very far away, obviously. And um, I was waiting for Tommy's phone call and I still remember like I can picture where I was when the phone rang and I see Tommy's name on the screen and I go, well, well, how'd the session go? And he said, 
I think it went really well. And they were going to record one song to be one side of a single with another band, right? That was the plan originally. And Tommy said, well, after we did the one song busted up, the Slim track, we let the tape roll and we knocked off three more tracks. I've got four of them. Would you want to do an EP instead of a just one side of a seven inch? And I was like, well, if they're all good, I do. And if you think they're good, I probably would too. And he said, I think they're good, you know, but I'll send them to you and you tell me what you think. And he sent them to me and I was like, absolutely, let's do this. So we had four tracks with the, you know, refurbished replacements, rejiggered replacements. And then Chris, of course, Chris Mars um, makes his own music separately, playing all the instruments. And he contributed a track. And we thought, let's put them together. We got, he was a replacement too, for God's sakes. He was a replacement before Paul Westerberg was, although they didn't have the name yet. Um, but anyway, um, so uh, that was really exciting. And I would say, honestly, I think the the uh, Gordon Lightfoot song they do on there, I'm not saying, uh, is I would put that on any replacements best of. I think that's one of Westerberg's best vocals. Um, a pisser that he didn't learn the words properly. He did that a lot with covers where he didn't really learn all the words correctly and made up some of his own or doubled up on some of the lines or whatever. But uh, but anyway, it's still, I think, just a very, very uh, convincing uh, performance and and uh, I like all four of the tracks that they did. It wouldn't be Westerberg if he wasn't having some creative liberties. Well, <laughs> that's true to some extent, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was a, it was an amazing project. And you know, the the thing was, we put that replacements ten inch out, limited edition of two hundred and fifty copies, all signed by Chris and Tommy and Paul, and we put them up for auction in January of two thousand thirteen. And a woman in New York who was a replacements fanatic said, I have to have number one and I'm not going to let anybody get it. So I'm bidding $10,000 on number one. We were like, thank you very much. And then she actually bought a second copy too. I forget how much she paid for the second copy. But um, anyway, we sold all 100, uh, all 250 of them and made uh, $106,000 to go towards their medical expenses. That was that was a glorious day. And they're doing well. Slim's still doing good. We just I was on the phone with his wife uh, just a couple days ago and um, you know, I, he doesn't talk exactly, but uh, I can he can listen to me blabber and Chrissy and I blabber and he puts his two cents in from time to time. And, um, you know, so he's still uh, he's still in a hospital bed and he's still paralyzed, but he's still got the will to live. It's a massive will to live. He's a remarkable human being. And his wife is a remarkable human being for doing this for 11 years. Well, as I said at the top of the show, you have got to be one of the most genuinely nice people that I know, and 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 doing that is just fr from the heart, and and just lo looking out for a friend. And, and that uh, I remember just watching that process happening uh, when when you guys were putting it together, and just thank you for doing that on behalf of the, the Dunlop. Thank you for so, saying that, Eric. That's very kind of you. And folks, don't forget to check out Peter Jesperson's book coming out. And uh, correct me, it's November 14th, correct, for Euphoric correct. Recall? Yep. So we, we've got, got to run it down there on the ticker. You can go there to check it out and uh, go and uh, make a purchase there. And don't forget, if you're living on the on the West Coast, Northwest down to Los Angeles, well, uh, are you going, uh, how far south are you guys going? Are you doing San Diego stop as well? Nope. Nope. And Tommy's not going to make it down to L.A. He got called back to the East uh, Coast to do uh, something, a, a benefit thing. He's doing a lot of nice work for people, too. Uh, so uh, I'll just be doing that with a, a great, great local writer here by the name of Roy Traken. Writes for Variety and uh, God, who else? He writes for a number of publications. He's really a good writer. He used to be at the Hollywood Report or not at uh, the Album Network and 
uh, longtime music guy out here in LA and great writer and great person. And we're doing it at Stories, uh, the bookstore just down the block from uh, the Echo. And it's run by the woman who used to book Spaceland and Satellite and Echo and Echoplex. And and so uh, she was one of my first friends in L.A. back in uh, when we first licensed a bunch of our Twin Tone titles to an L.A. company. And I was out here, started working out here in 92. So the great Liz Garrett. More, more venue memories from from my time in L.A. Good, good times indeed with music and and. Peter, thank you for being a, uh, the, the tastemaker that you are when in the, the brief time that we knew each other in my in my Southern California days. And just the, the man has put music in not just my life, all of our lives and cannot thank you enough for that. Just being the music fan, the producer, the DJ, the record exec and tastemaker. And again, folks, now an author of the book Euphoric Recall. Check that out and look for Peter on uh, any book signings there on on the left coast, the West Coast. Check it out. Peter, thank you. thank you again for joining us here on All Over the Place. Can't thank you enough. Great to meet you, Christine and Jim. Appreciate it very much. You've been listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. If you like what you've been listening to, and you know you have, be sure to share it with friends and family, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, wherever. Content contained herein have been the opinions of the hosts, the producer, and the guests only. You have listened at your own risk. 